Let us now open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 1, and we will read verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word is our humble prayer. Matthew 1, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew's Gospel, as you know, is about the king. And last week we saw the king's genealogy in chapter 1 of Matthew, and what a thrill to see how the Lord Jesus Christ was pointed to, how he would come, how he would be born, and bring covenant blessing to the nations. But now, in the passage before us, we find the king's birth. Other kings in the genealogy are just mentioned. This king demands your heart. This king demands your life. This king brooks no rival. And so I warn you that as we look at this passage, as the Holy Spirit blesses, the Lord Jesus Christ as king will push from our hearts all that does not belong, that he calls his own unto himself, that this king brooks no rival. We want to look at this text through the theme of the virgin birth that we find here. And the first thing that we see is the virgin birth announced. The virgin birth announced. We read in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so the supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit is mentioned right from the start in this passage that the Savior would be virgin-born. We know as we move along in the text that we find Joseph concerned that perhaps his betrothed had been unfaithful to him. Jewish engagement, you might remember, was binding. And even though no sexual relations had occurred at this time, Joseph was concerned that Mary, Mary had been unfaithful. He didn't know about the virgin birth. He didn't know about the virginal conception of Jesus at this time. And infidelity at this stage of an engagement would have been considered by Jewish law to have been adultery. And so when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, he jumps to a reasonable conclusion. But notice his kindness in verse 19. 
And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph loved God, and he loved Mary, and he did not want to put her through a trial or a public shame. And so he wishes to dissolve the engagement quietly. In verses 20 to 21, we see that God sent an angel to anxious Joseph in his concern, in his worry, in his consternation, and he addresses Joseph as son of David. Why does he address this man as son of David? Because God is about to send his son through his line, and this is David's line. Because the one who would come is the king, the one who would sit upon David's throne. And so fear not to take unto yourself your wife. Go on with the marriage. Do not dissolve it, because God is in this thing. The conception is through the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, an aside, but an important aside, Joseph and Mary have been prepared for such blessing and for such trial because they steeped themselves in the Word of God, because they knew the Bible. Last night we sang in our wonderful Christmas Eve service Mary's song, the Magnificat. And you will recall that in Luke's gospel, as the Magnificat is recorded, Mary breaks out into praise, and her praise is simply one scripture atop another, primarily taken from 1 Samuel, but other places as well, because her mind was so saturated with the word of God that when this event took place, she simply could praise God from the fullness of her heart through the words of Scripture itself. If we were to turn to the book of James, James being, of course, the brother of Jesus, James quotes more Scripture in five chapters than any other New Testament writer. Why? Because he was brought up in the home of Joseph and Mary. He was taught the Word of God from his infancy. And so they were prepared for this blessing and for the trials of life because they knew the word of the living God. And that should be true of us parents. We should be steeping ourselves in the word of God that prepares us for the blessings and the trials of life. We should be teaching our children the word of God so that their hearts and minds are saturated with the truths of scripture and they are prepared for whatever God brings in his providence into their lives. The name of the child is given. And of course, his name means Savior. In Psalm 3.8, we read, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And now that salvation in the person of Christ has come. Leon Morris tells us, For Joseph to call his name means to accept him as an adopted son and conveys Davidic descent. And so the one who is coming will be David's greater son, the virgin birth, is announced. The second thing we see as we move in the text is the virgin birth of fulfillment. The virgin birth of fulfillment. Look again at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the angel of the Lord in this dream to Joseph quotes Isaiah 7:14. Isaiah was an 8th century BC prophet, and by the power of God, he proclaimed the Christ who would come, who would be born of a virgin. Now Isaiah 7 is a very complex passage. Jehovah offers King Ahaz a sign, but Ahaz refuses because he does not want God interfering with his military alliances. 
God sets aside Ahaz, and he looks to the house of David, and he says to the house of David, I will give you a sign. I will give you a sign that long from now will be fulfilled, but it will come about because it is my word, and that sign will be, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. As we gather here on this morning and proclaim the word of the Lord, let me say plainly to you, we are not here because of sentiment. We are not here proclaiming a virgin birth that really is just a symbol. We are saying on this morning that we believe the Bible to teach and that actually in time and space and in history, the second person of the Trinity assumed human nature, that he really was incarnate that he came into this world to save sinners. That is the message of Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what the Scriptures teach. And that had he not assumed human nature, we would be lost forever. Because only in a human nature assumed by the Son of God Could our nature, fallen in Adam, be redeemed and saved? New Testament scholars have observed that the people whose sins Jesus forgives are the ones who will gladly call him God with us. That verse 21 is connected to this fulfillment. His name is Jesus fulfilled in the virgin birth. And isn't that true? That it is those who are saved by grace alone who will say and always confess, I know that it required the incarnation to save me from my awful, hell-deserving sins. I know that it required that God himself become man, otherwise I would be lost forever, and only he can redeem sinners. And so in verses 24 and 25, we are told, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph trusted God. He believed God. He obeyed God. He reverenced his name. Joseph's life did not revolve around himself. He submitted to the word of promise and believed what God had spoken. Don't you know that Mary was relieved? Imagine the relief and joy when Mary was approached by Joseph, and Joseph said, God has spoken to me too, Mary. I know that this thing is of God. I know this child that you are carrying is conceived by the Holy Spirit. What a relief this must have been in her life. And now Mary and Joseph can go on, and the word of the Lord will be fulfilled as God has spoken. Mary and Joseph later had sexual relations and children, we know from Scripture, but Christ is born He comes into the world through a virgin. At this point, they knew no sexual relations. God achieved the virgin birth. The third thing we see, however, is this. Having seen the virgin birth announced, having seen that the virgin birth is a fulfillment, we need to ask ourselves, the virgin birth, what is its significance? Why spend time here? Why spend time with the virgin birth and the incarnation? Why spend time here? Well, because God has revealed it in the sacred scriptures. 
Because he has revealed it is true, because he wants us to know, because it is essential, because it is indispensable. You know that the first three or four centuries of the church's life was given over to controversy regarding the incarnation and related issues because the church fathers understood that if these things were set aside, then there would be no salvation to proclaim to the lost world. No salvation, no light in a dark place. What then is the significance of the virgin birth? Well, let me list three reasons for its significance, and I'm reflecting the language of John Murray. First, we have a supernatural begetting, a supernatural begetting. Jesus was begotten by the Holy Spirit. Absence of, of human begetting made the birth of virgin birth. Second, we have, because of the virgin birth, a supernatural person. Not a mere baby is born in Bethlehem of Judea on that Christmas morning, but the eternal Son of God assumed human nature so that his conception was supernatural through and through. At no time was the supernaturalness suspended. And thirdly, we have, because of the virgin birth, a supernatural preservation. Jesus' birth was preserved from the defilement of original sin, so that he now, as the sinless Son of God who assumed human nature, can obey in the place of his people the law that you and I broke, so that he could go to a cross and as the sinless substitute of sinners pay the price by the shedding of his own blood that you and I owed for an eternity. The virgin birth. Is it important for the church? Is it necessary for the church? You bet it is. It's absolutely indispensable and essential that Christ be born of a virgin in order to save us from our sins. I've told many of you this, but some of you don't know. When I was a boy, the first sermon that I heard Dr. James M. Baird preach, who was my pastor, I was about 13 years old when I first heard him preach. The first sermon I heard him preach was from Luke's Gospel on the virgin birth of Christ. I still remember it these many long years later. Dr. Baird, at that time, was a member, of course, of the Southern Presbyterian Church, the PCUS. And he had gone to a presbytery meeting. Now that once great church that proclaimed the sovereign grace of God, the word of God, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, was beginning to be invaded by apostasy and theological liberalism. And Dr. Baird said, at the Presbytery meeting, there was a young man who was asked, he was a candidate for the ministry, and he was asked the simple question, do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? And Dr. Baird said, it took one solid hour of verbal chasing of this gentleman before he finally said, no, I do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. And the presbytery voted to ordain him. Dr. Baird stood and he said before the presbytery, this is no longer the church of my father's. And it was because those sorts of things were happening all over the southern church 
that the PCA came into existence. Let me say to you elders, guard the trust. To you members, guard the trust. Believe these truths. Take them deep within your hearts. Teach them to your children. For we also in future generations could apostatize as a denomination and preach that which is not true. Yes, the virgin birth is essential. Yes, the virgin birth is necessary. Yes, apart from this, we would be lost and we would have no sinless Savior to go to a cross and shed His blood for our sins. We sing together so often, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And we live in desperate times when people don't know what to believe. And we need to say to men, oh, against the blackness of original sin and against the blackness of our actual sins, you need a sinless Savior. You need a sinless substitute who can shed His blood to redeem you. You need a virgin-born Savior. People of God, aren't you glad for the virgin birth? Aren't you thrilled that God became flesh and dwelt among us? Aren't you so very thrilled on this Christmas morning that your Savior is a sinless Savior who actually could achieve and accomplish your redemption? Now finally, let's spend the remainder of our time on the virgin-born child, his name. The virgin-born child, his name. And it's found in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, this is a name given by God's command. And you know that it is in pivotal events in redemptive history that God shows the significance often of giving of names and changing of names. For example, in the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham means exalted father. Or Abram means exalted father. But then he is given the name Abraham that means the father of a multitude. The important thing here is that God gave the name. You don't set up your own savior. You do not set up your own redeemer. God sets up the savior. God sends his own son to redeem us. God only can provide the mediator between God and man. If you're setting up your own Savior and you're trusting to what you have set up, if you do not believe in Christ, you will perish forever. God sets up the Savior. God sets up the Redeemer. And he gives him a name. And the name he gives him is the name Jesus. Now, why Jesus? Jesus, of course, is the Greek for Joshua. Actually, it's a contraction. You know what a contraction is. You take is not and you say ain't, that's a contraction, all right? So excuse me, the English teachers who are here this morning. That's a contraction. Well, this word, this name is a contraction, and it means Jehovah is Savior. How significant that when God first reveals the Redeemer to us, he gives to his son the name Jehovah is Savior. The child is given a name that belongs to Jehovah alone. Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and depart from me, there is no Savior. 
Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Hosea 13, 4, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. And so Jesus, the name, speaks of a prerogative and ability that belongs to Jehovah alone because he is God in the flesh. His name tells us his mission, which can only be understood against the backdrop of man's sin and our great need. Do you call him Jesus? Do you call him Savior? Do you call him the one who alone can redeem? Well, does he save? Can he really save? Look at the efficacy of the name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. His people, not meaning simply the Jews, but that people given to him in eternity past that he might redeem. He has a people and he will save his people. There is something of distinguishing grace here, something of the sovereignty of divine grace here, that he has a people and he came to redeem his people And of his people, it is said, he shall save his people from their sins. It is not just possible. It is not simply contingent. He doesn't simply put you into some savable state and then you have to finish it out through your own work or your own effort. He doesn't say he will save you if you don't stifle it. He doesn't say he will will save you unless you exercise your free will. He says, I will save through Jesus. He shall save his people. It is an efficacious atonement. It is an efficacious salvation. Jesus really saves his people. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson is well known to this congregation. Dr. Ferguson, when he was a young man, went into a Methodist church and he heard this verse and he walked out a Calvinist because he said, I have just heard Jesus shall save his people from their sins. Thank God. He didn't come simply to make it possible that we finish the work. We couldn't. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. He came to save us from our sins. And how did he do that? By obeying this awful law, the curse of the law coming upon him in the penalty that he paid upon the cross by shedding his own blood that he might redeem his people as our sinless substitute upon the cross, bearing the penalty, bearing all the the boiling mud showers of the wrath of God that I deserve to pay. And then the father drawing his people to himself through the remarkable effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. But let's ask another question. From what does he save his people? Again, the text. Look at it. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yes, from the guilt of sin. That awful guilt that separated us from God so that we could not come into the presence of God without condemnation. So that now through Jesus Christ, it is said of every believer as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. No matter how deep your guilt is, when you trust in Jesus Christ, that guilt is removed through his shed blood. But not only does he remove the guilt of sin, he saves us also from the power of sin. Perish the thought that a person can be saved and there's no change in his life. That a person can be changed 
saved and there is no desire to hate that sin that nailed the Savior to the cross? No, no, no. When He saves His people, He does not save us in our sin. He saves us from our sin. And so do you see that this salvation is concrete and personal? That this Christmas message that comes to you this morning is the message, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Do you apply it to yourself? Can you call him Jesus? With all the confidence that makes salvation concrete and personal, can you call him Savior? Will you trust Jesus, the virgin-born King? Will someone here now say, I know I am on the brink of eternity, and I need the virgin-born Savior to cleanse me from my sin. I need his pure birth to save me from my sinful birth. And oh, the power of God. God wrought in the chosen virgin the body of our Lord. And that same Holy Spirit that brought about that conception can bring about faith in your heart to embrace Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. People of God, I wish I, wish I had the ability to speak these mysteries and these wonders on this Christian Christmas morning in a way that would so deepen our understanding and our appreciation that we would never forget it. I wish, I wish, I wish I could. But may the Holy Spirit do what I cannot. One of the church fathers said the name Jesus is honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, and joy in the heart. And may that be true of us this morning. We sometimes sing Jesus is the name that calms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. His name is music in my ear, tis life and health and peace. And think of this, that this Jesus who came into this world and assumed human nature, who obeyed the law of God in all of its perfection, who paid the penalty on the cross, was raised by God's power from the dead, ascended on high, and now presents his blood and righteousness and merit on behalf of you, his people. So that this morning, as through song and prayer and preaching, we speak the name of Jesus. He, in his very presence in heaven, is speaking your name before the awesome throne of the Father. And he is saying, Father, I have saved them. I have purchased them with my own blood. I have redeemed them. Bring them home. Bring them all the way home. And his name is Jesus. And it is a salvation that will not that cannot fail. My friends, wonder and worship. The Lord of glory came to us in incomprehensible shame and poverty to be made a curse for sinners. How filled with praise we should be. And if you are here on this Christmas morning and you are a stranger to grace, you don't know Christ. May God in His grace enable you to contemplate two things. May He enable you to contemplate the nothingness of time and the magnitude of eternity. 
that our sins deserve, that we suffer in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. May he impress upon you the nothingness of time, the magnitude of eternity, so that your heart, gripped by this truth, something that you just can't get away from, by the Holy Spirit is used to draw you to Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Because on Christmas Day, what you and I most need to hear is this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's who he is. That's why he came. That's why Christmas. And God's people said, Amen.